signed by 743 people against Norman Bates' release. Madam, please sit down. This matter is being represented by the district attorney. Norman was not convicted of murder. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Don't you realize they're going to release a homicidal well, maniac? I'm you to sit down, Mrs. Loomis. It's all too obvious. Our courts protect the criminals, not their victims. Norman Bates is judged, restored to sanity, and is ordered released forthwith. It's 22 years later, and Norman Bates is coming home. I own a motel not too far from here, and you'd be welcome to spend the night in one of the empty rooms if you'd like. Good night, Mary. And he's back in business. Who is this? My mother is dead. I'm telling you, there was a note on that wheel from my dead mother. Norman, it couldn't be your mother. It had to be someone else. But trust her. She would never do anything to hurt me. No. She'll kill you. I know she will. No, I... I won't do that. You can't make me... kill her. 22 years later, Norman Bates is home. Psycho 2. It's starting again. Here we are. We're back. Action rolling. Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Adam Walker, and joining me as always, my always. faithful, always my faithful friend, the Batman to my Robin, the uh, the peas to your carrots, the chickpeas to my hummus mm. for your shirt. That's right. Yeah, uh, Brandon. Howdy, Brandon. Howdy. Good to see you. I know it's yeah. been a minute. Um, we had a little, uh, we had some sojourning to do related to our uh, rock and roll jobs. Oh yeah, we were uh, like two ships passing them at night. I was I was in your neighborhood and you weren't there. <laughs> no, I'm 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 regretful that I didn't get to see you. How was that show? How was the showcase? The UG, the Uggy show? Yeah. Uh, it was, it was real good. We were received well, I feel. Um, it was the only time that a show was booked as a showcase yeah. where that word wasn't just a fucking curse to the show. Okay. Well, that's um, good. Yeah. It was packed house. People seemed to like it. Cool bands sold some stuff. Hot eats, um, cool treats. We treat yeah. right. Yeah. Hot eats, cool treats. Saw some buddies, but the thing that was cool is that we saw a lot of people at the show that I've never seen before in my life. So, um, you know, playing to new audiences, that's, it's good for the band. That's generally oh. what you want to achieve. Some people don't, but I feel right. like as, as a rule, people want to, want to branch out. They want to, they want to bring their methods and modes of expression to new audiences. 
Yeah, they want to uh, exfoliate the scabby, flaky, old, drunk friends of yore for <laughs> yeah. new uh, fucked up exploits. Yeah, get the young blood flowing. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, it was good. And you went on tour? I did. I uh, I went on tour for two weeks back out east, and it was a it was it was a success by most measures, I will say. And I got to catch up with some um, old friends, and I also made some new friends as well along the way. I um, did a little like Johnny Apple seating for the Pacific Northwest, where I made some connections with some bands that I would be really happy to bring out this way. So here's here's the hoping. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and throw that penny on that wishing well. Mm-hmm. It's true. Okay. So here we are. We are in the throes of Halloween month, a.k.a. October. And for those of you who have been listening to this show for now, we're in our fourth season. We have a tradition here of doing what we call the Flixtober month, where we talk about Halloween uh, related horror flicks uh we're always talking about horror movies on this podcast it's kind of my bread and butter but you know this is where we kind of we we hone our laser sights on specific movies specific subgenres, specific themes and kind of pick those apart and for this month we have decided that we're going to talk about sequels but not just any sequels we're going to talk about the second sequel in notable franchises and we're gonna you know i guess i've tentatively or did you you said you did i feel like i came up with this but you said that you came up with the idea of calling it like the you know the terrible twos or the the gruesome twosomes no you can take credit for that i take credit for coming up with the theme of the the sequels okay yes Uh fair enough i'll you take credit for that i'll take credit for calling it the, the the terrible twos yeah there you go and by terrible, we don't necessarily mean bad. We mean, um, you know, frightening or yeah, obscene, obscene, terrifying, whatever. It's so awful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear, it's so dastardly. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's pretty much what we're going we're gonna to be focusing on. And because it's my turn to be at the top of the queue, I'm going to kick things off. We're going to be talking about my movie tonight, which is one that's been on the list for a while for me, and this seemed like an appropriate way to usher it in. And I'm going to talk about Psycho 2, the return of Norman Bates. But before we get into that, there were some things that you said you wanted to talk about off the top, right? Uh, yeah, I just kind of I kind of wanted to have a discussion about sequels in general. Um, you know, this is something that's not new to any genre, but it happens a lot in horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um I was curious of, you know, your your critical thoughts on why this is kind of thing happens. For me, you know, it seems like there's kind of three branches of why it might happen. A, the first and probably most obvious is it's usually a cash grab. The yeah. first one did well. Let's see if we can exploit this character and stretch out something that's relatively already been made. To make a little more, little more moolah, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I think that the reasoning that we appreciate is uh, something like the continuation of a of a story to make it complete. You know, um, examples that come to mind would be like uh, Halloween. 
um, Halloween two finishes the Michael Myers story, or at least it was supposed to, um, it, you know, it's a double part, but, um, like made for TV movie. But when it came out, chapter one was on TV and then there was some time before the, the, the rollout of the second, um, installment of the, of the story to complete the, the entire saga, that kind of thing. That seems to be like the second category for why a sequel would be made. The third category is more interesting to me. It's when somebody takes something and um, puts like a fresh spin on it. It's not fucking annoying, you know, um, takes the characters and maybe does something wasn't intended with them, but it's cool. Um, I see that way less, but it is possible. Um, yeah, in that sense, we could be talking about more specifically like reboots. Yeah, reboots, definitely. Or, you know, a movie that was like an, an open and shut, but then it's a surprise that there's a sequel that comes out later. It's like, how, how are you going to make a sequel out of that? You know, so-and-so died or whatever, but they find some creative way to do it. And it's not just doesn't seem like an annoying cash grab. I think it'd be interesting to talk about, you know, these movies that we talk about, which category do we feel that they fall into? Um, yeah. Because, you know, there's always, there's always going to be that thing where it's like, Oh, I like the first one. They made a second one. Don't know why, but I'm maybe guilty pleasure going to watch it. <laughs> and yeah. I usually feel pretty guilty for it afterwards, but sometimes not. Yeah, and I feel like in general, the second movies in the series are usually the ones that are the most salvageable right. as far as franchises go. You'll have these rare cases where you'll get further into a franchise and you wouldn't think that the fifth installment would be worth a shit, but you're pleasantly surprised. Yeah, and we yeah. see that a lot in horror movies um, in general thing is, is that some of the movies that they pick to make these saga franchises out of are kind of perplexing to me. Um, I personally think that making many, many phantasm movies is kind of weird or many Hellraiser movies by and large, the Cenobites are kind of like doofuses, you know, to watch them over and over again. It's kind of, to me, the interest is just what kind of freaky, new S&M Cenobite is it going to be? You know, they don't really do anything. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that would fall in the latter category that you're discussing of the cash grab. Yeah, right. It's, that's just, you know, studios, whoever own the rights to those characters and that story, just milking it for all that it's worth. They know that they could do it cheap and it's going to turn around a buck. And I mean, that's what most horror is about. You know, horror being an, uh, a manifestation of exploitation or, the, you know, vice versa. It's all about the cash grab in a lot of ways. And that's why also I would say that the sequel, the phenomenon of the sequel or the multi-part sequel, the, the long-running franchise is more so than other types of genre-related films indelibly intertwined with horror. Because it's not something that really you see much of before the 70s. Yeah. Um, as far as I know. Right. Like, this is one of those things that I, I wanted to do a little bit more homework on. But 
in general, I feel like the sequel as a phenomenon, the repeat sequel, is not something that you really confront until the 70s and 80s. Yeah. On, you know? Yeah. So. I, I would agree. I mean, I, there's nothing in, in memory that, uh, you know, there, like for, for horror movies, you know, all the way back 50s or something like that, and you go to the go to the dollar movies, there'd be lots of movies that were like each other, similar, you right. know, especially in this kind of shit, aliens, monsters, whatever. Right. There weren't direct sequels where it was a continuous story. Yeah. yeah. You had very clear... Um, trends like after the universal monster boom you had the atomic age sure horror and then you had occult horror and then you had slashers yeah they're all of similar um phenotypes similar species right um do we have a sponsor for tonight i i, I forgot to mention our sponsor you know, it's it's your. <laughs> it's, we do. It's your it's your flick. It's coming in hot off the press tonight's sponsor is Norman Bates Kitchen Cutlery, uh, <laughs> Mother's Finest, only for Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Will Mother accept Norman Bates Kitchen Cutlery? Uh, yes, Mother. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. So there you have it. Okay, well, that was a good preamble um, to lead into the movie proper. So, as has been discussed on previous episodes, you, until per my request, because I wanted to do this movie, had not seen the original Psycho, so you did your homework, you did your due diligence, so now you were brought up to speed with why this movie relates to that one. Sure, yep. Um, I actually have never seen any, like the remake, Psycho, Mm. You know, with uh, Vince Vaughn and the Gus Van Zant one. It, yeah, never watched that either. And I yeah. actually own both. I own the first and the remake. I just never got around to them. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, watch the 1960 Psycho um, without going into it very much. Yeah, pleasantly surprised. I was yeah. thinking I was going to be bored, but not bored. Very good. Yeah, I can see. Good. I can see why people uh, uh, laud that as a as a classic that should be in any horror anthology i would um, say also very very definitively that is the birth of the slasher this yeah was psycho yeah i mean looking at a timeline I would, I would definitely agree uh so something that i had to do a little bit of looking in and actually we talked about it off mic was how many people norman killed in the first movie yeah because i could only remember two I guess there was maybe three, but he killed six um, by the end of the movie, by the things that you read, that there's off-screen deaths. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he's definitely a slasher. It's not like um, it's not like an incident that happens, you know. It's many incidents. On, so On camera, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm up to speed with this. I'm up to speed with what old Normie's been up to. That's good. That's good. So this was released in 1983 and came out of the USA. But the director of this is Richard Franklin. And I don't know how much you know about Richard Franklin or um, investigated, but I actually um, really love Richard Franklin because he directed the movie Patrick. It's an Australian 
um, psychological supernatural horror movie. Mm-hmm. So it was very cool that he was tapped to direct this, given his uh, repertoire bef- before. So I feel like he, because of that movie, he this movie was in good hands. Well, and it also had uh, Tom Holland as a writer. Tom Holland also. Tom Holland was the writer, uh, notable for uh, also helming Child's Play Fright and Night. Fright Night. So yeah, so we got a real um, got a real solid uh, cast here. We got also uh, starring Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, Meg Tilly, Robert Loja. <laughs> I was happy to see him. I always think of Big. His, you know, he's the shit bat, like the owner of the toy store or whatever. The yeah, toy Robert company. Loja's great. Robert Loja also was in Scarface. He was in. Um, I want to say he was in Lost Highway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great character actor, Robert Loja. And why am I? Oh, uh, Dennis Franz. Dennis Franz. And fucking NYTBD blue guy. <laughs> yeah. So we got a pretty good cast here. Um, this was. Um, yeah. So this was made 22 years 21 years after the original. And it and it's consistent in the story of the movie, too. Yeah. That it's 21, two years later. Yeah. Uh. So this is my synopsis that I came up with. Norman Bates gets sprung from the funny farm and the wacky hijinks ensue. Just there you go. I always like to put the wacky hijinks in there. <laughs> but seriously, folks, Norman attempts to adapt and acclimate to the world after being locked up for 22 years, only to find... He is beset by the specters of his gruesome past. Can he resist the temptation to kill again? And Norman Bates, um, he served his time because he was, uh, you know, he was a, he was convicted on insanity of yeah. insanity plea, and uh, so he served his time. And Robert Loja's his doctor. Feels like he has uh, rehabilitated enough to enter uh, civilization, and uh, yeah, and that's basically. You know, that's where we start off. And there's a whole um, kind of not really complex, but there's there's um, there's machinations that are going on in the background that Norman's not aware of that are used to manipulate him into killing again and being thrown back into into the into the clink permanently. So um, movie was a. Made on a budget of five million and gross thirty four million dollars, almost thirty five million dollars. So it was a smash hit. Jeepers! That, that was right. a no do part to them clenching having Anthony Perkins back in his title his title role, and it was also a bit of an albatross. I feel because what happened was Anthony Perkins, who was an, was an amazing actor, was kind of typecast mm-hmm. think, from that point on. So it was tough for him to really get any roles outside of being Norman Bates. Sure. Well, and this is what I'm. This is what I mean that <clears throat> Anthony Perkins reprising the role, but Psycho, the original Psycho, as far as I can tell, was a hit when it came out. I mean, it's it was seen as you know um, a a very uh, enthralling movie from from jump. So. 22 years later, this comes out. I think that um, with the weight of that movie, people would 
be inclined to see it no matter what. Right. Yeah. So that's going to put the butts in the seats just for the fact that um, they want to see what happens next. I mean, especially at the time when this came out in 83, like we were talking about, there probably wasn't a lot going on in the world of sequels yet. It was probably right. the beginning this of that was, idea. This was in the very beginning era of sequels being a phenomenon. Right. So, I mean, it seems like it's a too big to fail kind of thing right out the gate. Pretty sure also, and we might get into this with the, the trivia, but there was also discussion of not even tying it in with Psycho. They wanted to make it a completely separate entity unto itself because I read somewhere where somebody was saying, I think it was, who was it? It was Tom Holland. Yeah, Tom Holland's quoted as saying something like, you know, that it has really nothing to do or no resemblance to the original. I don't really agree with that. It clearly has... Resemblance yeah. to an original in many ways. This movie wouldn't exist without. I mean, they 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 go back and they flash back and they source the f- shit that happens in the first movie so much that that seems yeah. like a um, a fallacy to even say that. But yeah, they're they're pretty intertwined. But I don't know exactly what he meant by that. Yeah, well, no, no shit. I mean, Lila Loomis is the sister of. Um, Help me out. What's her name? Mar- Mar- Mary. Yeah, Janet uh, Leigh's character. Yeah, from the first movie. Yeah. So, I mean, without that, you wouldn't know why these people are tormenting Norman in this movie. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, critical reception. I didn't want to pull anything specifically uh, except for this, and I didn't – I forgot to put the attribution, but I thought this was a good quote where this critic said – the wittiest dark joke is the entire world wants Norman to be mad and normality in quotes can only be restored if he's got a mummified mother in the window and is ready to kill again. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I thought about this movie in the parlance of our times. It's like the ultimate gaslight story. Totally. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It's like everybody is, every single thing is trying to trigger Norman into fucking going off the rails. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. Um, well, I'll save this for the discussion, but yes, totally. Um, and I don't want to dip too much into talking about the original Psycho, but the thing is also, because we're talking about exploitation films and, you know, the fact that, like, that movie was such a smash hit, even though Hitchcock himself is considered this highbrow director in many ways, he's a very celebrated director, the original Psycho was clearly an exploitation film. Yeah. It, it, it utilized the techniques of the day that other like note like William Castle, you know, used to get people to buy tickets. Right. Um, and it was based off of like a pulp novel by Robert Block, who ended right. up writing like a novelization of this sequel as well. And Robert Block also was involved in other films too. So, you know, he had his hands not only in, in the literature that things were based off of, but actually in the adaptations. So anyways, I just wanted to sidebar that a little bit, but you know, if people can do their own research, we're not talking about Psycho One. We're talking about Psycho Two. We'll yeah, um, we'll be going back and forth a little bit, but I don't want to. I don't want to digress too much. So that being said, if you have anything else off the top, would you like to get into talking about the movie more? Yeah, let's let's dig in. Okay, so we're gonna go into the good, the bad, and the questionable. I'm. I'm sorry, Mother. I didn't mean to insult you. Norman, stop it! This is not your mother. Hello. 
Hello, Lila? Lila, are you there? There's no one on the line. Hello? Yes, Mother, I'm sorry we were interrupted. Norman, there's no one there. Yes, Mother. Hello, Norman. This is your mother. It doesn't sound like it. It is, Norman, and I want you to hang up. Do you understand? Hang up. All right. Do it, Norman, now. Hang up. Starting at the top with the good. We already talked about this, but it's written by Tom Holland. So, yeah. Capable Hands, directed by Richard Franklin. We've got a good production duo here to set this up for success. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Fright, both Fright Night and Child's Play, Tom Holland's got a good pedigree. Um, I think that somebody approaching this movie would be, they would be eternally stigmatized if it was a total stinker. They took it on and, you know, didn't do it justice. Yeah. Um, so he probably came in fully loaded, ready to, 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 uh, to give it his best. Yeah, and uh, Richard Franklin, also notable for being the director of Cloak and Dagger. Oh. Which uh, featured, I believe, Dabney Coleman. Wasn't Dabney Coleman in? Yes, he was. Dabney Coleman was in Cloak and Dagger. I haven't watched that in many years. Um, but all, as far as cast goes, uh, obviously Anthony Perkins um, does a phenomenal job in this. Um and Meg Tilly, very young Meg Tilly, um, the sister of Jennifer Tilly. Speaking of uh, Chucky and Child's Play, Jennifer Tilly notable for being the bride of Chucky. No, so her, yeah. her older sister, Meg Tilly, right. was, was involved with this. And apparently um, Meg Tilly didn't get along with uh, old Norman too oh. well. But off off know. screen? Yeah. Yeah, but apparently... It didn't affect their chemistry because I feel like they do have a good chemistry on yeah. screen here. It's it's working. I think maybe the fact that there was some animosity when those sort of things happen, it it, it works in the benefit of creating the chemistry on screen. As right. long as like the actors are able to, you know, harness it or rein it in in a way. Yeah, I mean, it, can they do their job professionally? You hear about this kind of shit all the time, especially in horror movies. Um, first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, for example, um, Toby Hooper telling little secrets to try and to one person and something different to somebody else to raise the tension. That way he can get it on screen. This it's happening naturally. Well, <laughs> I guess <Yeah. laughs> maybe that, I guess maybe that works in their favor. Yeah, totally. Um, Love the set design in this. I, I've i always loved that house. And yeah. when I found out that that wasn't a real house, I was genuinely bummed because it was one of those type of things where I'm like, man, I would love to go find the, the house that this was like filmed in, but it's on some set on the Universal back lot. So it's right. not like a real place you can go to other than, you know, on set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, set design's real good. They do a, a real good job in, in this movie, in the, in, in the first movie, I guess. Of just making it feel very lonesome. Yeah, very, very desolate and isolated. Yeah, like you have you no know, other choice but to stop at the Bates Motel. 
Right. Well, that's the thing. That's the paradox of it is why would you want to? But also, yes, you don't have any other choice. Or alternately, you have the scenario that we confront here with Norman coming back home from the mental asylum and confronting Toomey and figuring out that, you know, Toomey's been running, you know, a fucking a flop house. Essentially, he's been yeah. running a, an, an adult entertainment uh, <laughs> place. Sure. Or, uh, all kinds of, you know, uh, lewd and lascivious acts to be engaged in at the Bates Motel. Yeah. Some unsavory fellows. When, of course, you know, that's going to run afoul of Norman because, you know, the, the, the subtext, there's a lot of subtext with, with Psycho. This one and this, and the first one and this one. And, it, and not only like, it's not only like the on screen, the character development subtext, but I feel it also kind of involves the actual actors themselves. Cause I don't know how much you know about Anthony Perkins, but you know, he came out of the closet uh, years later. So he, you know, he was gay yeah, and he hadn't come out of the closet at this point. I can't remember where, when he did, but like, or maybe, maybe he didn't, but it was revealed later. It might've been a posthumous thing. Again, I should have done more research on this beforehand, but I feel like that also is a good, like, to know as subtext with this, because clearly when people like, if you're doing like any sort of like, you know, gender study analysis of psycho or any sort of like psychological analysis, like anything related to like, you know, um, I guess like what would be considered like a, 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 a character sexual study. Yeah. Like it's, it's a discussion about people, you know, maybe not, you know, being comfortable in their own skin gender wise. Right. There, there, there's, that's one layer of this that like, you know, like that's the whole thing with Norman Bates is Norman, Norman Bates is potentially like transsexual. He dresses in his mother's clothing and kills women. Yeah. That, and that's an ongoing theme also in horror movies. You have that with, you know, well, I mean, I mean with this too, this movie is, is, uh, obviously influenced. And I mean, it's been documented that, Influence comes from Ed Gein, yeah, and, Ed Gein. Um, right. and all of this. So, yeah, I mean that plays through now. Whether whether uh, he was cast with somebody kind of feeling he had some kind of um, uh, t- trans element to him or not, I don't know. Maybe it was prophetic. <laughs> Maybe somebody had like a bit of a gaydar or something. But um, it it works here because. Norman Bates is a clear, genuine, fucking crazy. His like timidness and kind of his wholesomeness, like when he goes to, you know, sees what Toomey's up to, and you see that he's not not going to fly with him. Mm-hmm. Um, that really lends to the overall unsettling and and realness to the character to me. Yeah, again, it's it's great character development. It's a great way to to build a character as being complex. Yeah. Norman Bates is a very complex character. You know, he's, and that brings me to talk about what I was going to say next was I, I, I don't know about you, but I feel for Norman throughout this movie. You're like, you want Norman to be okay. You want him to have a second chance. And like, uh, uh, you know, Lila and Mary, they're, they're trying to sabotage that. Right. Their own agenda. Yeah. I mean, 
the the way that this movie plays out, there are things that I wrote down because I was taking my notes as I was watching it. So chronologically, I'd be writing these things down. And then I, as, as twists are reveal themselves, you know, I kind of like backpedal and think, well, now that the full picture is out there, yeah, these notes are around and he's getting these phone calls and he's just going, he's being very honest with everyone. These are notes from my mother. Yeah. (laughs) Why, why is this happening? And he's trying to understand it just as much as everyone else. And come to find out that it's these people playing this fucking awful, well, not even a joke. They're trying to get vengeance of sorts. But, um, yeah, you definitely feel for him as it progresses. Uh, you know, that was the thing that I was going to mention in my goods is that the the persistent tension um, and, and all of the stressors that are presented to Norman to try and excite his psychotic behavior throughout the movie – like I think that that was really well presented and it was never at a point where it was like boring, you know, it's like, yeah, we saw this note, phone call, note, phone call. Got it. It's like, it's, it's, it's brought in such a way that it's this unsettling smear of Norman and it makes you makes him more humanized, you know, it's like all yeah. this guy's trying to do is just get on with his life and his past keeps hitting him whether he wants wants it or not right and i think also if you've never seen this movie before and you're watching it for the first time it also it cleverly deals with what i would consider a lot of horror movie tropes where you're seeing like a heroine or like a victim in the movie and they're clearly doing things that like like why would you do that that's stupid but like you see that it plays into the whole plot yeah like mary being naive about Norman when he's clearly, you know, he's, he's clearly unwell. Right. He's clearly doing things that are like pushing boundaries. Yeah. But she's like, okay, you know, yeah, sure. I'll come to your house. Sure. I'll stay with you. Yeah. But he's, you know, when a man that's just, you know, that is fresh out of the mental asylum needs to acclimate more, needs to adjust more or whatever. And that being said too, it's funny. Cause like he is exhibiting, these expressions of his like illness that I I would think that if this was like, you know, happening in real life, his doctor would immediately kind of like put him back in, (laughs) you know, it's like, he's already starting to backpedal. So, you know, why, why, you know, it's basically that they're giving him enough rope to hang himself with. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I mean, that'll come up later for sure. Um, but, uh, Right, you, and I um I almost felt like watching it that that kind of gaslighting behavior or whatever was also portrayed by Doctor Raymond, where it's like he's he wants it almost seems like he wants to prove that this guy's rehabilitated by these stressors are happening rather than putting him back in. We're gonna just trust that he's going to make his way through this. And it's going to show that in the face of adversity, he's a rehabilitated man. Yeah. You know? And that's right. also like aggravating as the viewer to watch. It's like, why yeah. aren't you doing something? Right. Cause he doesn't want to be proven wrong. He wants to show that like, well, the system works. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, like we, we haven't, you know, we haven't failed that quickly. Yeah. Totally. I agree. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I really like the premise of this movie. I like how it is kind of complicated 
it, and it's it's you can really kind of pull back a lot of layers while you're watching it. Yeah. Um, as far as how it deals with mental illness, how it deals with people rehabilitating, how it deals with people confronting their own sexuality, how it deals with people confronting their own familial trauma. There's a lot of different things that it's trying to talk about, I feel like, here. Sure. Um, within this movie. Um, maybe some specific things that I really like about it is, um, I don't know what it is. I, I never really thought about it before until I watched this last time, but there's the scene towards like kind of like the third act where um, Norman's like clearly like he's going off the deep end. He's he's insistent that his mother's out to get him. She's in the house and Mary's living with him and he wants to protect Mary. Yeah. So he's insistent that she stays in this bedroom with him for the night. And there's like that moment of like tenderness where they have together where it's like she holds him <laughs> and he's trying to like, you know just calm down or she's trying to calm him down and it kind of pans out and it shows that really beautiful shot of them in the bedroom where it's like, you know, the shadows are really long. I don't know. Something about that scene in particular really hit me this time. Yeah. You know, because I think that's where it was like, that's kind of like the cross point or cross. I guess that's like the, I guess the, the meeting point where it's like, you see that Mary has, she's come around to this idea that like what she's doing to Norman, what she's involved with is bad. Yeah. You can see you like know? the misgivings is in, and, and, um, she's definitely doing this more in favor of her mother. What was, well, she says it later. I'm tired of living for dead people. Yeah. You know? Well, and that's another thing too, speaking of like, cause we have Norman dealing with his own mommy issues right you have mary dealing with her own mommy issues so you have these parallel characters dealing with like mother issues yeah and they're they're very similar i mean two controlling maternal forces you know obviously norman has his the whole movie late first movie lays out his problems but this one it's like this mom is on this crusade to put him back in um because the system won't do it or or as, so she feels and <laughs> is having her child as kind of like a tool in her toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. She and I have this this is in my questionable so I'm kind of, you know, I'm moving ahead here a little bit but um it's questionable that Lila is using Mary as bait. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's, it's pretty sadistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, she totally is. Hey, I'm really worried about this psychotic dude reoffending. Why don't you go live with him? Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a completely absurd right. plan. Yeah. Um, I, I liked uh, I liked that Norman's hallucinations like throughout the movie and the way that they kind of rolled them in with things that you can't really tell as the viewer as you're watching it. For the first time, I mean, this is a great example. I've seen this for the first time. You can't really tell what's what. You can't really tell. Is this a hallucination? Is this yeah. is this like a? Is are they are they establishing like a haunting element to this, or mm-hmm. is there some kind of trick being played here? Um, I thought that was really well done. There's a lot of times you can you can predict this shit a mile off before it gets yeah. to the, you know the main hit. Um, so I thought that was good for specific things. I specifically thought that 
Lila and um, Raymond's death scenes were great. Lila gets the knife right through the mouth when she's screaming. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and then just, you know, Raymond's death isn't really crazy. Um, I mean, it Mary- kind of is. Well, it is. It is. But I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty basic. Mary stabs him, stabs him by accident. But the fact that he hits the railing and the knife goes in deeper. Yeah. <laughs> I always think that in movies, you know, someone gets shot by an arrow and they fall over. It's like that motherfucker is going to go straight through you now. That, right. th- that they went in and they showed that in detail. I thought it was, it was pretty good. Yeah, I had that in my good as well, and it's it's interesting with those deaths because this movie up until that point is a fairly bloodless movie. Yeah, it's really it's all about building the atmosphere and the tension. You know, it's it's very well paced in that regards. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of like on screen violence going on until that last act, right? Where it's like everything just goes batshit, you know? And yeah, that scene where he like. Stabs Lila right in the mouth and <laughs> yeah, and, and, it's and, yeah, it's 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 very very jarring and that's that's why I like that juxtaposition up at that point because you're not being like hammered over the head with like gore and violence up at that point. It's just like that punctuating there at the end makes it that much more effective. Yep, agreed. Uh, yeah, because it sets the tension. It's kind of like The Shining where sets all of this tension to just explode in the last 30 minutes of the movie or something. Yeah. Um, so continuing on with that whole sequence there where things are like definitely escalating and things are going really off the rails. Another part of that uh, whole sequence when um, Norman is like backing up uh, Mary and he grabs the kitchen oh, yeah. knife. Yeah. And like, oh, dude, it's like, you know, I, I, I genuinely I the like, same way. <laughs> like, because oh, like, oh, he's just like pulling the knife along his hand. Yeah. And you're just like, you're just like cringing and like squirming. Yeah. Watching him pull the knife away. Ugh. And then it shows later when he's got his hands like bandaged up that he basically, you know, he has stigmata wounds. Right. I like that whole interplay of, you know, integrating this religious kind of element to it subtly, you know, that Norman, Norman is being martyred or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, I can't remember where it falls in the movie. It must be pretty early because it plays into, it's when Norman, you know, he's saying, I saw my mother in the house. It was her. And then, um, they decide to exhume Norma, Norma Bates, corpse to prove to him yeah the makeup on norma bates is excellent i paused yeah. freeze frame paused it and just like the putrescence and and bloated and she's got like a slash across her cheek i don't know it's it was really really good um, yeah it's really good it's very like it's it's almost akin to like a, a thing you'd see like in a Fulci movie or something yeah, yeah definitely um the last thing on my good that i really it stuck with me as um, just like a very kind of arts artistic shot. It's when um, Norman's real mother, Mrs. Spool, yeah, uh, is coming up this the walk to the house, yeah, and and when Norman, the very last scene when Norman's standing outside the house, the way the sky is moving and the mm-hmm. house is just like really hard contrast. Um, and the skies, the clouds are moving really fast. Um, 
the colors and everything. I really like that. It's super striking. But the final, final scene where it's just Norman standing out there, he looks incredibly lanky. I mean, he's a tall, stringy guy, but the way that shot is and the lighting, it makes it look really otherworldly. Yeah, I agree. I had that down as well. Yeah. That whole final sequence is really creepy and uh, foreboding. Right. And what a great way to end the movie. I mean, the bad guy wins in a way, but he's not. It's like we're talking about through the whole movie. You're like, damn, Norman can't get a fucking break. And then in the end, the way it all plays out, he's off the hook and everybody believes it. That he's innocent. Yeah. 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 Totally. Um, Yeah. That whole final, the the finale there with his interaction with Mrs. Spool um, and then him walloping her, her walloping her in the back of the fucking noggin which is also really good <laughs> there's something really satisfying about old cotton ball people getting just smashed <laughs> right yeah totally um yeah so that's i that's pretty much my goods um so you want to move on to bads yeah let's do it bads i don't really have a whole lot of bads they're not like really technical bads or anything like that i will say one of my bads is just, uh, I guess, lifestyle choice, whatever bads is the teen smoking grass and getting ass in that nasty basement. <laughs> I put that like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, let's see. What fucking person wants to, like, ooh, let's go to the murder house. <laughs> I know, right? You know? She's already, she's already like one foot out the door. So let's take her to a place where a bunch of fucking people get killed. Not only did a bunch of people get killed here, but fucking mother was stored in this basement. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, I'm sure we could share stories like being teenagers, horny teenagers. You know, when you're a teenager, like there's a lot of times where you just, you're just going to get it where you can. Sure. I'm not saying like I haven't done it in places. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have done that. It just does seem like a very, very poor choice to to decide to, to you know, fuck on this disgusting mattress that you're just going to roll out on a dirt floor in the murder basement? Yeah. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah, um, he, he had the mattress stored away and everything. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, <sighs> so it's like, I don't know if the mattress is already there or he brought it in, but either way, you know that mattress hasn't been cleaned and fucking years oh he this this is this chick is just another this skirt is just another number to him he went right to that mattress he knew where it was this dude's more of a psycho than Bates, in my opinion (laughs) he's a he well good thing he gets uh taken out because one less future norman one less future baiter if you know what i mean (laughs) um and then other than that i just said bad is mary and lila's plan yeah so i mean right it's 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 poor it's never gonna end good for anyone i mean sticking your fucking daughter into a house with a dude who's already unhinged and just presenting stressor after stressor at him she clearly does not have a concern for her daughter's well-being you know yeah um yeah i have more bads but they're more like my style pedantic 
persnickety kind of shit. So I'll just kind of I'll kind of blast through them. Yeah, we got to fluff this category up a bit. Sure. So just the plan to leave Norman alone at home. I mean, th- this is more on Raymond and his, you know, his rollout being the his no, Norman's doctor. Um, it seems like a, a poor choice to not only the dude's been away for you know twenty plus years. The one place he goes back to is the, the entire house is a trigger for him. And he, right. you know, he walks in and he goes like, well, clearly being back here, it's going to bring back a lot of memories of the past. But, hey, you know how to deal with those now. Right. <laughs> kind of like pats him on the back and a little laugh. Yeah. <laughs> See ya. You know? Yeah, right. Um, so that seems like an awful plan. Um, yeah. R- right from jump. Um, the poisoning flashback, that's fine. Uh, it doesn't bother me except for they just went a little, they leaned into it too hard. You know, you hear, what is this in my tea, Norman? What'd you put in my tea? Then you hear the glass clatter. That's all I need. I don't need, I'm going to show you what happens to little boys who poison their parents. And then the like flashback of him as a little kid. We know he was little. We know he was 12 when all this happened. We know it's poison. You don't need that extra adage. I thought that was a little bit bloated. Um, in the in the interest of you know cueing us as the audience into what's happening, and it was I didn't have to go that far. I don't think. Um, let's see. I, I, like, I put down Mary's persistent snooping behavior, but like I said, I wrote these notes as I was watching. Then it turned out that she was trying to, you know, set Norman up for some things. Um, so I'll just kind of skip over that. Uh, Mary's dumb fucking trust in Norman. Like, I get that she's a plant and she's there to do a job to kind of set him up. But then at that turning point when it's just, oh, well, you know, I feel bad for him. And then just kind of go along with him. Um, yeah. and the way he's living, even though throughout the movie he's gone, it's happening again. <laughs> you know, he says that like, I feel yeah. myself losing control. She's still right by his side throughout. I don't know. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be reconsidering my options if I was her. Um, the way the murder knife is held. I think the same thing happens in, in Halloween, lots of movies where the blade you have to look at a knife to probably understand, but it's like you're holding the you're holding the knife in a stabbing position, but the blade is turned so that if it were to rock, it would go back into your own forearm. Yeah, right. Why do fucking people do that? It doesn't. It's impractical in all senses. Yeah. <laughs> so that just bothers the shit out of me. Um, let's see. Yeah, yeah, blade on. Uh, so I, I snickered a little bit when you'd mentioned the good about the, that scene where Mary's coming around to kind of changing her mind about the plan. And she's, you know, it's like a tender scene. She's holding Norman and consoling him because the bad sandwich scene, I call it because he, he, he's, you know, <laughs> close and he goes, you, you smell good. You smell like toasted cheese sandwiches. My mother used to make me toasted cheese and, you know, and I don't really remember anything from that time at all. And then he starts crying 
except for those sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was a little that was a little heavy handed in that part. Otherwise, I do like that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um let's see. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to mention was just kind of Norman's somewhat nonplussed reaction to Mrs. Spool being his actual mother. I mean, I guess there's a little bit of lead up because he is having that phone conversation with her at one point, mm. which, you know, we think he's talking about his Norma Bates, but yeah. he, he gets, he gets that call from her. Um, and she kind of reveals to him the truth, but when she finally shows up, he's just like, for a guy who is ruled by a domineering mother and that has kind of ruled his entire existence and identity, for him to just kind of go, mm, yeah, you're my mother. Okay, well, here's some tea. I'm going to blast you over the head with a shovel. I felt that he was a little underwhelmed by the news. Well, and that's where I have questions. Okay. So. All right. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll revisit that. But as, aside from that, that's the uh, – Extent of my bad. And they're really not bad overall. It's it's more just like picky, pedantic shit. Yeah. Okay, so questions then. Um, well, since we just left off on it, and this is a little farther down on the list, but let's let's revisit this whole idea of Mrs. Spool. Yeah. I've always felt with this movie, I have I feel like that scene is very loaded. I don't necessarily know if it's it's really implying that Norm or uh, that Mrs. Spool is his actual mother. It's almost set up in a way that I feel like that's just another one of his hallucinations. Mm. That we don't really know who his mother is. I feel like it's still Norma Bates or his original, you know, the the intended what we consider his mother, the canonical mother. Right. It almost could be like because he's entered the full throes of like schizophrenia now he's, you know, it's his brain's been blasted open again. Mrs. Spool clearly is a sympathetic character to him. You know, she's very sweet to him when he comes, arrives at the, at the diner and everything like that. You'd almost like think that it's like what he's imagining is Mrs. Spool comes to visit him because the diner's right at the street, you know, yeah. so far. Maybe she's just coming in to check on Norman. And maybe he's imagining her saying these things and that he just killed her. Right. Maybe she's not really saying that she's his actual mother. Yeah. I feel like that scene is just, it's, it leaves, a, it doesn't, it doesn't resolve things. It doesn't, it doesn't leave you walking away from like, oh, you know, that's his real mother. And he, you know, he has his, <laughs> you know, he, he has a mother murder in fetish. Yeah. So, I mean, with that, that calls into question a lot of the movie because she says, you know, yeah. one by one, I took care of him. Well, maybe it was Norman the whole time. And he right. actually does have a lot of blood on his hands again. Right. And I think that's intentional. It's right. intentionally trying to leave you with this idea of it could have all just been like a, a hallucination. Maybe he did really kill all those people. Yeah. Or maybe it was Mrs. Spool. Right. Maybe she was. His. So... Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me that for Norman, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Whether it is his no mom or not, she now is the um, totem, if you will, or an icon yeah. 
uh, th- right. that he needs to continue his psychotic behavior because he smashes over the head with the shovel and then he's taking upstairs and then they're having a dialogue, puts her in mother's room, you know, yeah. and it's like now he's back in his happy place or or whatever. Right. Things have reached homeostasis. Yeah, exactly. It's like, like going back to that quote that, you know, it's just things can't be right in the world unless Norman Bates is actually crazy. Sure. Well, and the, and the <laughs> other the other thing you have to consider is everyone in this town, at least, if not, you know, nationwide news, knows about the Bates murders and stuff. So yeah. they have to know that Norman poisoned his mother with tea. You know, which apparently killed her. Um, so Mrs. Spool showing up and drinking tea. It's like if Mrs. Spool is really if all that's really happening, it's not Norman's hallucination. It's almost like she wants to be the completing piece in the puzzle for him. Yeah. Well, I think even talking about it now, I'm thinking about her name. Mrs. Spool. Yeah. She's the thread. Right. She's like the thread that connects everything. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. You know. So, yeah. So, that's, you know, there's a lot of questions that could be had with that oh, that final scene. Um, the other one uh, I had was, what did Norman's parents' mother do other than run the motel to have a house like that? Because I feel like that ho- I mean, Randall, let's say, okay, yes, like that house was bought like in the early, early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Would a ramshackle motel off the beaten path be that lucrative? I I don't know. I, don't, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe 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 they inherited this house. Maybe it's like a family plot. Yeah, very, um, it's a very grandiose house, right? Well, um, yeah, that's something where it's like um, the mother in the end. She goes, "Well, you got to open the motel. What, what are we going to live on? Hope." Like, okay, yeah. so is that to suggest that in Norman's reality, they somehow exhausted their resources? You know, maybe yeah. they had constructed the motel when they had more money. They're, they right. must be of money. I mean, the house looks yeah. like very, you know, Victorian, which is strange because it's in California, right? Fairvale? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Just, I'm not saying, like, obviously, like, it's not out of the realm of possibility that this is an inherited house. That come there, the the baits come from money. Yeah. The funny so. thing is, though, is you've got this <laughs> just like block ass, basic shitty motel. And then, hey, look at the looming, creepy house behind <laughs> the place. That's like the attraction, the, you know, the window view. You get to see my fucking scary house. I think also, if we're talking about like metaphors and things like that, or ways to, you know, talk about subtext the juxtaposition of the Victorian house to the motel where all this bad shit goes on, I think is good too. Not just because it's a creepy house, but because the association of like an older set of morals and expectations that, you know, cause the, you know, the Victorian era sensibilities is intertwined with this idea of being prudish about sex. Yeah. Clearly like that's Norman is dealing with his own, struggles with sex yeah sexuality mother his mother own, forbade it yeah his own his own sexuality as far as like what he is is he you know gay is he transsexual is he straight but also like being attracted to women that 
confuse him even more. Right. So he's trying to do his best to rein in all of this. And what it leads to is him just murdering people, <laughs> murdering women. Poor Norman. He's just trying to trying to make right in a world gone wrong. Right? <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I think the house with the motel juxtaposition is another thing that could be unpacked a lot more. Um, I already talked about uh, Lila using Mary as bait. That's very questionable. We've already we detailed that quite a bit. Okay, yeah. so what do you got? Uh, what is Norman making with all those groceries that he brings? He brings he brings a sack of groceries which contain like it looks like several brand cereals and some sugar. Is he making some cookies or something? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then he brings like a sleeping bag. You can only imagine came from the institution that he came out of. Yeah. Um, I just I find it funny. You know, looking into his bag because that was a prop that was put together. So yeah. you go, okay, what's he going to need in there? Crackers, some saltines. I think you see some kind of brand cereal, sugar. <laughs> I mean, fucking guy, what is he? What is he doing? Um, <laughs> it, it, on the tail of my bad about this, but just a little more unpacked. The idea to send Norman Bates free after twenty-two years. Okay. You know, he had his day. He did his time. Right. But he clearly is not in a position to be left on his own. You see that right almost from the first beginning scenes when they get to his house. And it's like immediately he's having triggers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would think that somebody like Dr. Raymond, if he's done any kind of due diligence or his job, he would see that mm, Norman at least needs a handler or something. Um, yeah. And like to me, that's another whole like kind of discussion that this movie is having is about the breakdown in in the U.S. specifically in handling people with mental illness and having not only humanitarian facilities, but also robust like financing to be able yeah. to continue to deal with them in a way. And like, that's the thing. One of the notable things about many notable cool things that Reagan did that, you know, came out of that was he kind of wiped out Cutbacks. a lot of those facilities. Yeah. And, and Raymond says it, but they kind of shoehorn in there. Well, too bad for the cutbacks. Otherwise we'd have a social work come out to you. Well, right. see you later. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing. Like, yes, clearly, like, someone in Norman's position would need a social worker that's kind of monitoring him day to day to make sure that he's he is making progress in society again. Not only was he making institutional progress, but he's making actual social progress. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, that kind of comes into the way Norman fits into his own rehabilitation. He thinks it's a good idea to immediately invite a guest to the house. Right. You know, I mean, Mary, yeah. like she, he's she, lonely. right. Yeah. Just, well, I got a motel. I mean, he's making, he's making it real easy for her to come. There's no, yeah. there's no friction at all. Um, and then furthermore, you know, when Reynolds does do his wellness check and, oh, I got this girl staying here and they're like really close to each other and stuff when she comes down the steps to meet Raymond. Yeah. Does he think it's a good idea that Norman's moving so quickly 
into yeah. these positions when historically he's never had any kind of love interest except for the women that he murdered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's uh, a little suspect. Um, let's see. Yeah, who wants to fuck in the murder house? That was my question for this yeah. kid. Um, yeah, so Norman's having an episode, and what is Mary's what is Mary's uh, response? Oh, you just need some of my special fucking coffee, Irish coffee. Where? Let's drink. Is there any booze in the house? No, I don't keep booze in the house. Well, let me find some booze as quick as possible because best thing for mental illness. Throwing a bunch of fucking piling on a bunch of brandy, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, yeah I that's, mean, you know? I guess that's realistic. People do that. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. It is completely realistic. That's what people do all the time. Is instead of confronting mental illness, they just mask it with substances, right? With bad habits. <laughs> yeah. Um, this kind of plays into something we talked about earlier about Reynolds and trying to like prove himself and the system works, but it seems like is Reynolds trying to set Norman off? I mean, is he trying to put these triggers out the way he tells kind of spills the beans about Lila and Mary's plot and just like, okay, well, you care about this woman a lot and you know, you're in this stressful situation. Let me just lay this down. They've been doing this to you this whole time. The woman yeah. you're living with is deceiving you. I'm going to continue to let you live with her, but I just, so you should know these guys right. are trying to fucking do you in. Yeah. And I have a question about that, how they kind of frame it. Like they can't really do legally do anything about it. And I'm like, I don't know. There has to be some sort of precedent for this. Like yeah. they're clearly. Yeah. Let's, let's step back <laughs> to the law enforcement <laughs> aspects. Like, right. Look at the pathology of, of his crimes. Yes. Yeah. You should probably step in more than just like the show up that they do at Reynolds behest to, to try and get, these stressors out of his situation or, you know, do more wellness checks, something. Yeah. Rather than just, Hey, um, this, this lady's backstabbing you. She's living with you. This is going to set you off into a homicidal rampage Bye. check out, check in on you in a couple days. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, okay. So I don't know if you caught this, but, you know, when Raymond gets killed, he kind of sneaks up behind Mary, goes, gotcha, or something like that. How did he get upstairs? Is there a second entrance to the house? Because she's kind of looking down the staircase at Norman on the phone. Yeah. And then you see the sneaky, you know, shadow silhouette behind her. <laughs> so how did, how did he get in the house? Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. Um. Okay, and then here's my last one. So <clears throat> when Lila gets killed, she goes into the cellar, the fruit cellar. She pulls up that stone where she has a stashed, like, mother get up, you mm -hmm. know? She puts it on, and then she looks up to see Norman or Mrs. Spool, somebody, and gets stabbed right through the mouth, right? Then she gets buried in that outfit. But then later, when Mary's trying to, you know, snap him out of the phone call. She goes into the basement and finds that outfit under the stone. Is there two of them? Is there two? Well, I don't think 
but I don't think Lila put the outfit on. She just gra- she was going to oh, grab it. Oh, you're right. She was yeah, taking it off. The, yeah, she's like in the process of it, and then she gets murdered. Okay. All right. But it is funny that whoever killed, again, that also goes into like what the discussion about how much of this is in a hallucination, hallucination, how much of this was done by Norman. But it's funny that they were caught with that outfit or that get up, and then it was placed back to its original spot yeah to be found by lila right right so who who would have done that sure yeah um, but that's that's it that's all i got for the questions okay good that was a good good discussion all right so that being said we're going to move on to the back half of the show the awards and categories section it's all right mother norman i'm not your mother it's all right how many times have you killed mother and how many times have I killed mother? I am married. And they're going to come to you, mother, just like they did before. Stay away from me. <laughs> and I'll cover up for you. I'll give you the Stay knife. Stay away. I always have. Because I'm your dutiful son. And you're my loving mother. So please give me the knife. And here we go. Popping it off with... Quotes. I had one quote, and it's from the sheriff, and he says, but if Norman Bates is crazy, there's a lot of people running around here who are a close second. I, I put that one down, too, yeah. <laughs> so, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, I, I had another one, too. Um, it's kind of on the same lines. Um, it said, the, the, I think it's the sheriff confronts Mary about her behavior when he kind of finds out what Marion and Lila are up to. And then, um, you know, he says something that kind of makes it kind of come to Jesus and makes her feel like she should reconsider what she's doing and feel remorseful. And she says, I didn't mean to. And then the sheriff says, that's what Norman said 20 years ago. And he was crazy. Now what's your excuse? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's funny because this is also another, this is a discussion on top of all these other things that we're saying that this movie maybe is discussing is this idea of small town incompetence or small, you know, the, the trouble that lies beneath what would be considered a quiet, seemingly, you know, non disruptive area, I guess, um, you know, like there's this, there's the the trope in in this country that small towns are safe, people yeah. are reasonable. You whatever. can you, you don't have to lock your doors. Maybe you don't even have Not locks lock. on your doors, yeah. right? But it's having a discussion about that, sure. Especially with like that quote from there are those quotes from the sheriff, where the sheriff's like, "All y'all are fucking crazy." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought. I mean, that sheriff man, he was. Uh, he was he was cracking them off with some witticisms, some very stoic, multi-layered witticisms. Which it's funny to me how like the the sheriff in particular, but the the police force also seem to have almost like this sympathetic view of Norman. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like very like congenial with him. They're like, they're "How's on, it going, yeah, Norman?" They're on his side. <laughs> they're on his side. 
<laughs> you know, there's there's not this mistrust. I mean, there is. You can tell that, that they're kind of side-eyeing him, but they're also like, how's it going, Norman? Yeah. Fair- have, have a pleasant day, Norman. Hey, yeah, Fairvale <laughs> is pretty progressive, I guess. Because historically, <laughs> that is not the case with no. psycho murderers who have been rehabilitated. Right, yeah. You would think it, they would be some nimby-ass motherfuckers. They'd be like, get this guy out of here. Yeah. I don't want him anywhere near my shit. I don't want yeah. him working near me. I don't want him living near me. Yeah, yeah. I don't, you know. He can be here and all. Just don't get any of his psycho on me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay. So for our awards section, the Derek Zoolander Award for the biggest rube in the movie. I mean, this is one of those where you can say everybody. I guess I just said Mary and Lila for thinking their plan would work. Yeah. I, I said Mary over Lila because she's with him throughout and even yeah. in that that change of heart she continues to be there thinking it's going to work but I also said Raymond Dr. Raymond because yeah. I mean just to let him go out into the world with no with take the training wheels off 22 years later and just let's see how it goes and it seems <laughs> like poor fucking planning and the wacky hijinks ensue. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat Award for Best Wardrobe and Makeup. There's nobody that really has a standout like wardrobe, but I guess Norman. I mean, Norman, his, he has a very subdued stylishness to him. I he wanted to mention this. Turtleneck at yeah. anywhere, you know, he wears blazers. <laughs> I wanted to mention this earlier, but he has. Now, stop me if you don't think the same. Does he have a distinct Marshall Applewhite Heaven's Gate look to him? Yeah, he does. Along with, I thought, that between that and like 60s, 70s era Leonard Nimoy. Yes, that's true. You're right. That kind of nerdy, trekky look. Um, I chose Norma Bates' corpse. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's not really. It's good. I mean, I, I, I would, I would count her as a character because she's this, you know, ethereal presence throughout anything to do with Norman Bates. But that makeup was badass. I had to go back and pause it. I mean, it was, it was real good. It'd be good enough for a poster or something. Yeah, she's got some grip too. Real, she's- real juicy. <laughs> Uh, okay, the Cosmo Kramer Award for the character most likely to appear in a Seinfeld episode. I I chose Toomey. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I, could, I could totally see that. Um, I chose Mary, you know, uh, Seinfeld's fucking wackadoo girlfriend or Costanza's girlfriend for a night. And then they find out she's a fucking idiot. Yeah, I chose Toomey because I could just see him being... Like the guy who works at like the you know the betting counter, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. what, or he, he works at like Bleaker Bob's or one of these like shops that they go to. Yeah. It's just he's like one of those skeezy side characters that they somehow interact with. Sure, yeah, I can. Uh, I, I you're starting to sway me that way <laughs> to me for sure. I feel like we 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 rely on the the idea of the, like the the girlfriend or the boyfriend to. to jerry or elaine a lot so i I do for sure yeah um just because probably because it's like a general theme through seinfeld is uh the rotating cast of 
significant others. Yeah. Because there's a lot of them. That's one <clears> thing about, you know, with Seinfeld is they be fucking a lot. Oh, you bet your sweet ass on that. <laughs> they you bet your sweet, lot. putrescent, Norma Bates, juicy ass on that. Yeah, you, you bet. You better believe it. Okay, the Danny Trio Award for character most likely to have a spinoff. I put Mrs. Spool, or I just wanted to know her backstory, if yeah. she is, in fact, Norman's mother. Yeah. I, I could see that being a whole uh, other program, like a serial or, or you know, whatever mm-hmm. that could be developed. Yeah, I put um, Toomey in the character that he is running a sleazeball fucking motel. You know, I could yeah. see him as being some kind of creepy voyeur situation or something. Pretty sure isn't there. There is a, a show, Bates Motel. I don't know. There is. Yeah, yeah I haven't, I haven't watched, watched any of it. Neither have I. Um, okay. <laughs> so that brings us to the trivia with the body count at the top. I counted five. Let's see. Yeah, I think you're right. Let's see. What? Okay. Can we rattle them off? So you, you got Toomey. Toomey. Uh, Toomey dies. Boy, creepy boy in cellar. Sex boy. Sex yes. boy. Fuck boy. We- You've We've got, got Lila. Lila. We've um, got Mary. Mary. We've got Reynolds. Oh, and then we got Mrs. School. School, the six. Yeah. So we got six, right? Was there, there wasn't anybody else in Lila's car. It was Toomey and the boy, right? Yeah. When they pull it out of the lake. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's six. There you go. So six. Okay, I got a real quick wormhole, so I don't know if you pulled up anything. I just wanted to you, last you, this. Yeah, you probably hit what I was going to say, so let's let's have it. Okay. Uh, at the top, Jamie Lee Curtis was suggested to play Mary Loomis uh, because of her relationship to Janet Leigh, obviously, Janet Lee, but she couldn't do it because she was going to be in Trading Places. Right. Which was that year's uh, top comedy. Sure. Didn't want to be roped back into the old horror final girl thing. Yeah, she didn't want to be typecast like old uh, Anthony was. Yeah. Um, I thought this was kind of interesting. Writer Robert Block published the novel Psycho 2 in 1982. The plot of the book is very different than the feature film. It has Norman Bates escaping from the mental institution and traveling to Hollywood, California to start uh, stop the production of a film based on his life. Universal Studios were reportedly upset by Block's take on their horror film industry, and this led to the development of the 1983 sequel. Right. I think that premise is, sounds really fucking corny. Yeah. Um, what, other, what, like, what would we have got? You know, we wouldn't, I don't think we would have been having a very um, positive reception if that was what we got as the sequel. Yeah. I like the idea of him busting himself out and then creating some sort of mayhem, but not. This whole harebrained, like, Norman goes to Hollywood, you know? <laughs> what the f- What? No, uh, no, and no, then no. every continuous sequel is him jet-setting the fucking planet. Norman, right. Norman, Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where in the world is Norman Bates? <laughs> Norman San Diego. Um, Anthony Perkins was ambivalent about playing the sequel. Yeah, he didn't want to play Norman again. So it was rumored that Christopher Walken yeah. was going to play Norman Bates, which I could see that. And I think that that could be cool, but obviously Clench and Perkins was the way to make this a blockbuster. Right. So there, yeah. And then, um, what did you say? 
He said Tom Holland or walking can't confirm or deny the reports. Uh, they apparently they don't. I don't know why they don't want to discuss it, but that's a rumor that Walken was supposed to be Norman Bates. Yeah, yeah that that would be interesting. The funny thing that I thought about that piece of trivia is he was in Perkins was ambivalent to play in the sequel, so then he just did all four of them. <laughs> just go ahead right. and whole hog it. Right. I think he even produced like. The third one, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen the third I've never seen one. that one, but I want to because that was one of those movies where, you know, back when they'd have the clamshell VHS at the yeah. movie store. I remember Chris that cover. Yep, holding the keys. Yeah. yeah. Very famous. Very famous. Yeah. It's one of those things where I should have seen it by now, but I just have put it off and put it off. Eh, um, maybe I'll watch it tonight. Yeah. So uh, Tom Holland, the screenwriter, he plays Deputy Norris. Um that that was kind of funny. I had to I had to watch it a second time to to look out for that, see what he looked like. Yeah, yeah. Um, Meg Tilly uh, expressed that this was her worst film experience, <laughs> uh, and said they were very difficult to work with. It seems like with Meg Tilly though, it was also an issue of her just being kind of a brat. Yeah, because what I read was she didn't. She was raised kind of isolated or was raised kind of like sheltered so she didn't have access to television and tv oh so she was raised in a cult that's what you're saying that's what it sounds like essentially and she didn't know what was the whole hullabaloo about anthony perkins being the star again which i feel like you got to be kind of fucking dense even if you've never seen any of this like like you would at least kind of know like oh well yeah like i've never seen the movie but i've heard that this guy is the star of the original, this this huge like cult movie, right? You don't even, and then you, you don't kind of defer to like him being the one that's going to be treated that right. way. You don't even <laughs> need to have heard through the grapevine. It's like, look, this movie was a cult classic. It was an instant classic when it came out in 1960. The yeah. guy, the star of the show, is coming back to play the character 22 years later. That's right. a big deal. It's a big deal. People are excited about it. It just sounds like she just like was really young and just was just being a brat. Sure. Essentially. Um, let's see. Composer Jerry Goldsmith had written a musical theme for Norman Bates. The director, Richard Franklin, rejected that theme ended up being the used in the Twilight Zone movie from 1983 yeah. as well. Yeah. The, I, I didn't say it in the good, but I do like the soundtrack. Yeah. A lot this as well that i do like the theme song it's very haunting and very melancholy yeah yeah um, but it goes with the lonesome setting for sure apparently it brought anthony perkins to tears when he heard it well he was so moved by it sounds like a lot of things bring him to tears mother toasted cheese sandwiches <laughs> yeah it's not easy to make him cry he cries <laughs> at the idea of a toasted cheese you sandwich can cry baby cry yeah <laughs> Uh, Quentin Tarantino has said that this is one of his favorite films and that he prefers it to Psycho. Fuck Tarantino. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, I love the fact that Quentin Tarantino likes this movie so much. It brings me a lot of joy. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I guess. I know you're not a, you don't like Tarantino, so. I, it's not that I don't like him. I think he's just <laughs> gotten too far up his own ass. And he's got a chin you, that won't quit, so that's got to hurt. You wouldn't dis. You know, there's a lot of people that would probably agree with you on that yeah. on that opinion do you have anything else uh no i think that pretty much wraps her up for me that's 
that's good. This is a brisk one, and I wanted it to be so. I th- and I think it was a good, fulfilling discussion. It was, yeah, yeah. This it is, needed is- to happen. I mean, you you pushed me to something that needed to happen in my movie cinema experience. I I did Psycho. Yeah. Been, since we've known each other, you've been on me, ribbing me about this <laughs> shit, and I did it, and it was it was good for me. You know, and there's very few films where I would like ride your ass about that. Like, I get it. Like, you know, everybody has in in their cinematic tastes or their history of things that they've seen. There's going to be movies that, you know, everybody that someone that's, I guess, that's even nerdier about it than people like us would be like, what? You know, like, it's like the more you delve into this world and the more you get more like nerdy about it. There's going to be those like more elite people that are going to be like, why, you know, what the fuck? But I feel like Psycho is one of those movies that just even like as a basic like appreciator of cinema, it's one of those things that you at least had to have seen Hmm. just to give you some perspective because it is such an influential movie that it's like, you know, people talk about how like there's whole books written about that shower scene. Yeah. You know, as far as like how pivotal it was and how traumatized people were to take a shower Right, exactly. Be in the bathroom in general, right. Yeah, so cool. Well, I'm glad that we were able to finally get to this point and talk about not only the original one, but talk about the sequel, which I feel is one of the greatest sequels, like one of those movies that really does a good job of continuing into, uh, continuing the saga or whatever, which brings us to talk about what you wanted to talk about. Yeah. How do we feel about this in terms of a sequel? You know, I think... This falls, if you, okay, let's try and establish. Category one, is this a sequel that continues to complete a story? Category two, is it a reimagination that it was a pleasant surprise that was done in a creative way? Category three, is it a fucking cash grab? I I would say it's all three. Yeah, I mean, I think that that there's priority there. I think that priority falls on category two, that it was a reimagination. It did not need to exist to continue Bates' story. Bates was incarcerated at the end of the last one. He's a fucking Looney Tune. Case closed. (laughs) Case closed. It took, obviously, it took 22 years to make a fucking sequel. It didn't have to be there, but it does exist, and it's excellent that it exists yeah yeah it helps to establish like it you know it's opening pandora's box it's 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 putting out something that didn't need to be there and now you got to finish it right so if this movie was the end of the franchise and there wasn't three and four i think it does great so category two completely that's my priority category one it also checks that box Category three, I don't know. I mean, because I didn't look at the optics, but they had to know this was going to be successful. Even if it was a flop, the initial box office opening weekend was probably going to be big. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's like it wasn't a cynical cash grab, but it was definitely like, oh, like roping Anthony Perkins into this. They were like secured that it was going to be right a, a, a bonkers hit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's I, I think it hits all all three categories for sure. Yeah, um, rating and then well, let's come up with the iconography. So, your movie out of five, what 
do we rate this? What are what's our iconography here? You go. Uh well, because I like it so much out of five fucking bloated putrescent Norma Bates corpses. Yeah, that's a good one. Out of five knives to Delilah's mouth. <laughs> I also <laughs> like I also like this. Let's <laughs> let's go with that. Okay, out of five knives in in an old biddy's mouth, what do you what do you rate this? Um, now I've watched it twice because I watched it yeah. once and then I watched it again to really critically, you know, sit down with it. And upon yeah. second watch, it was it was just as good as the first. I think it's rewatchable. Um, liked it a lot. I think I'm going to give it a four. Four knives in Lila's fucking shithole mouth. Yeah, I'm right, I'm right there with you. This is one of those movies where I could probably, if I was being gratuitous, you know, give it a little bit more. But again, I'm just, I don't, you know, real reluctant to give it a perfect score. Yeah. I'm going to give it a four out of five as well. Right. Okay. Um, as far as this being a midnight movie. I, yeah, this is a midnight movie. I would say this is like a right on the midnight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the step up in violence and just, I mean, yeah. you know, you could censor that out in, in, uh, yeah. For TV. Which in or fact, whatever. I'm pretty sure I saw this on television. Oh, uh, so yeah. But just, just the themes seem pretty dark. Yeah. You know, trying to drive a person mad, et cetera. Yeah. I think this is a midnight movie. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that, caps off our very first uh, Flixtober movie of this series for the fourth season. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go ahead and hand it off to you, my man, for the next episode. This is your movie, and what are your picking? What's your picking? What's my pickings? My pickings is the 1986 sequel to uh, Toby Hooper's perfect film, I think, that we can <laughs> unanimously decide. This, in this house. In this house. We'll have, we'll have one of those signs like in this house, yeah. love is love. This house, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a perfect movie. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I'm talking about TCM2, baby. It's great. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Me too. Okay. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for our intro music. Our outro music is going to be Italian Death Thrasher's Psycho. I feel, or sorry, I'll edit that. Our outro music for this episode is Italian Death Thrasher Schizo. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I feel like is fitting to the theme of this movie. And it's going to be the track Manifold Hallucinations. This is off their uh, album Mainframe Collapse. This is a unheralded classic of thrash. My opinion. <laughs> See, uh, for me, I just think that you're getting hallucinations checking out your fucking carb on your goddamn 1969 SS Charger. Yeah, that I, manifold I <laughs> is really tripping me out. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's really, it's really projecting my thought to dress up like my mother and kill everyone in my motel. Yeah, it's almost. It's kind of like a, then we're talking about Christine. Yeah, it's like the, the haunted car is driving me insane yeah that's it <laughs> uh, okay um, if you want to send us any email you can email us at midnightflixpod at gmail.com we are on Instagram at midnightflixpodcast and on TikTok at midnightflixpodcast signing off for Brandon Hayden this is Adam Walker and we'll see you in Texas yes mother
Sounds good, Michael.